We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast while the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you. Now get a sausage McMuffin, sausage biscuit, sausage burrito, or hash browns. Choose two for $2.50. Enjoy a large iced coffee for just $2. Price of participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Single item at regular price. Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner, really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. Welcome to Mission Evolution Radio Show with Gwilda Wiaka, bringing together today's leading experts to uncover ever-deepening spiritual truths and the latest scientific developments in support of the evolution of humankind. For more information on Mission Evolution Radio with Gwilda Wiaka, visit www.missionevolution.org. And now, here's the host of Mission Evolution, Miss Gwilda Wiaka. Hello, my visionary friends. Thank you for joining us on another exciting adventure into future possibilities. This is Mission Evolution, where we share innovative thoughts and information with today's leading experts, bringing the latest knowledge to support your evolutionary process. You're a very important part of this discussion. Email info at missionevolution.org with any comments or questions. We'll address them on the very next show. So take notes, sit back, and enjoy. This hour, we'll be exploring when sound becomes visible. Sound is something we tend to take for granted, never giving it much thought. Unless we're hearing impaired, it's something that's always been there, even before we left the womb. It may have started with the sound of our own heartbeat or that of our mother, but as soon as we developed enough to hear, it's been part of our experience. There are schools of thought that indicate some sounds can be detrimental to our health, while others can aid in healing. What are these hidden properties of sound? How do they impact us? Can sound make us ill? Is there any truth behind the concept of healing with sound? Can working with sound fine-tune us and aid our evolution? With us this hour to delve more deeply into sound and its many hidden properties, including becoming visible, is acoustics pioneer and author of Egyptian Sonics, John Stuart Reed. John is a man on a mission to educate and inspire the world in the field of cymatics, the study of visible sound, and sound therapy, the healing power of sound. His cymatics research includes a study on how dolphins see with sound, published in the Journal of Marine Biology, and differentiating between the sounds emitted by healthy cells and cancer cells, published in the Water Journal. His website, Cymoscope.com. John, thank you so much for joining us on Mission Evolution. It's a pleasure to be with you today, Quilda. So let's start out with what's your educational background? Well, I started life as an engineer. I've become a scientist in the last 20 years or so of my life. But, but initially, I was an acoustics engineer 
So I spent, what, almost 30 years in kind of standard acoustics. Um, this is before I became uh, interested in cymatics, the this, this science of visible sound. So I was an acoustics engineer. I ran an acoustics consult consultancy business. Uh, for almost 30 years and um, yeah it was a pretty standard kind of engineering background uh, but all of that changed of course for at one point in my career when I visited Egypt that's when it really all <laughs> when my story really begins. So um, let's start with what is cymatics? Cymatics, uh, spelt with a C, not with an S of course, but uh, cymatics, C-Y-M-A-T-I-C-S. It's basically the science of visible sound. And what we mean by that is that when sound impinges upon a membrane, and in fact there are membranes all around us all of the time, um, not only the surface of our skin, and, and really every cell in our body has a membrane of course, but also all of the day-to-day um, -day objects around us, they're all classed from a scientific viewpoint as membranes. And when sound impinges on any membrane, it has to leave what we would term today a cymatic pattern, a pattern of acoustic energy. Of course, it's invisible to the unaided eye, but nevertheless, these patterns are there all around us all of the time, and even in our own bodies, as we'll discuss a little later. So. Um, this science, this new science, was really kick-started by a, a Swiss doctor, Swiss medical doctor called Hans Jenny in the 1960s and 70s. He coined this word cymatics uh, to mean visible sound. Um, so, uh, and he inspired me for sure because that particular point I was referring to in my career when I visited Egypt uh, all those years ago, um, I knew very little about cymatics actually at that time, even though I'd been studying acoustics, you know, for all of my, my career at that point. But cymatics, is, at least at that time, was not terribly well known in the, in the field of acoustics. So sound, as I understand it, <laughs> no expert here, but sound is a mechanical wave as opposed to an electromagnetic one like light. Would you help us understand the difference between them and how they relate? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, the, the first thing I'd like to say is that is a sound is not actually a wave. I know we all use this term. Um, it's a it's a bit of a misnomer, unfortunately, that we're we're stuck with. I mean, it's it's not going to change. But uh, the fact is that sound is not a wave. What I mean by that is that all the audible sounds that, that we make with our own voices and make with you know sound systems speaker systems and so on all of these sounds the sounds made by nature you know animals in nature creatures birds and so on all of these sounds are actually spherical they're literally bubbles of sound and where this term wave comes in is because the bubble of sound this sound bubble is actually oscillating or pulsating in and out and it's this rhythmic pulsation of the sound bubble, which when graphed um, appears to be a wave motion, but in reality we are talking about sound bubbles. And um, it is, it's a strange one, but, but basically uh, all of these sounds that we've ever heard from our birth have been spherical in their space form. So, so basically sound is simply the passing on 
of periodic vibrations, which you know can be created by, for example, our our vocal uh, tract. Um, and um, these periodic vibrations are leaving now my mouth and my nasal cavities, of course, uh, as a bubble that expands, of course, at the speed of sound. So it is, as you say, it's a mechanical vibration uh, that is, in this case, spherical. And light also is spherical. Um, you know, we talk about light rays and so on. But again, the reality is that all of natural light, at any rate, is spherical in its space form. It will literally um, propagate away as a bubble of light. So both sound and light are bubbles, excepting in the one case where we're talking about, if we talk about lasers, laser light, of course, is a um, human-made form of light that does not propagate spherically. But all incandescent light or natural light, such as sunlight, all propagates spherically, but they are two very different um, acoustic, uh, sorry, scientific phenomena. So first of all, as we've said, sound is a mechanical vibration, right? But light is, is not mechanical. Light is an electromagnetic phenomena. That means it's magnetism that is oscillating or pulsating and um, pulsates uh, at very high frequencies, of course, not like the kind of sound frequencies, but so we can measure both sound and light in terms of frequency, but they are two very different phenomena. However, there is a connection between these two natural phenomena, um, and it's it's as follows. You know, if we if we rub our hands together very vigorously. Uh, we know what happens. We we hear a, a slight sound, of course, this, the skin in one hand is rubbing past the skin in the other hand. And we hear that sound, but we also feel a, a beautiful warmth that starts to emerge. And the, the harder we, the more vigorous we rub our hands, then the more warmth, more heat is created. Well, what's happening here? Well, basically, the molecules in the skin of one hand are slipping past the molecules of skin in the other hand. Of course, we the the general term for this is friction, isn't it? We you know we we say that there's a frictional force between our two hands when we do this. But what is friction? Well, let's go right down to the atomic level and think about the atoms and molecules that form literally are forming the cells of our body, and in this case, in the skin of our of our hands. At the atomic level, every atom and every molecule is surrounded by a magnetic field. And when our two hands rub together, what's really happening is that the magnetic fields of the uh, molecules and atoms in one hand are slipping past the molecules and atoms in the other hand. In other words, the, the magnetic fields of both sets of atoms and molecules are literally rubbing past each other. And when, what, we ter, what we call this in science is an inelastic collision, an inelastic collision. And this means that some energy has to be given up when, the, when these magnetic fields interact with each other. And of course, the energy that's given up is heat, right? So this is this is the point I'm coming to now. I know it's a bit long-winded, but basically, 
uh, it's a kind of magic that happens because when we create sound or when we make sound, we also have, we can only do it by this mechanical means that we are talking about, for example, with say with my voice now. And so the information is being passed on from atom to atom, molecule to molecule, as this sound bubble expands away from my mouth. But, of course, these collisions that are happening in that sound bubble are inelastic collisions. And this means that some heat has to be generated when this bubble is propagating away from me, right? So that heat that's generated is actually modulated in both frequency and amplitude. And so what this really means is that every time I speak or sing, for example, not, not that I'm a good singer, but you know, if I make my attempt at singing, what it means is that I'm actually creating a light bubble at the same time that I'm creating a sound bubble. And this is really important, actually. When it, We'll talk later about sound from a healing perspective, but it's a very, very important uh, aspect of physics, this connection between sound and light, because we cannot create sound without creating light. But the light, of course, is not visible light. It's light in the infrared spectrum that we, you know, commonly term heat, for example. Um, so, uh, so is that that's the same um, uh, spectrum that causes us to warm in the sun? Is the electrum is the uh, ultrared? So you're well, standing out in the sun, your skin yes. starts to get warm. Infrared. Yeah. It's okay. infrared, basically infrared light, you know, which is uh, is um, lower in frequency than visible light, but not as high in frequency as ultraviolet light, for example. It's part of the electromagnetic spectrum. But all the sounds around us, the, you know, everyday sounds, are constantly creating this very small amount of infrared light. The important thing to remember, though, is that the infrared light that's created by all of these sounds is modulated in both amplitude and frequency by those sounds. So let me give you an example here of, why, of how this is relevant to everyday life, right? If we go outside and we sing to the sky, okay, like Julie Andrews, you know, uh, sitting, uh, standing on top of a hill and singing to the, to the hills and to the sky. When we do that, what happens is that our song, our audible song, will diminish very rapidly. I mean, even if you have a very powerful voice, within about a mile or so, um, all of the energy that's, that's in your voice will be absorbed by the atmosphere into eventually noise. Uh, but of course, what's happened? The energy hasn't been lost. No, it's been transformed into heat. And that heat uh, now radiates away at the speed of light. So this is the infrared light we're talking we, about. We are going to have to finish making this connection and connect sure. it to the subject at hand on the other side of a commercial break, but it is time for that break. John and I will return shortly, so don't go away. This is Mission Evolution coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net and the Exxon TV channel, www.exxontvchannel.com.
again. This is Mission Evolution, missionevolution.org. We're dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. To our faithful and thoughtful audience, we really value your opinion and would love to hear from you. What do you think about the healing properties of sound? Email me at info at missionevolution.org and give me your thoughts or questions so we can all share them on the next show. This in from a member of our audience regarding the episode entitled, Restoring Physical Balance as a Key to Evolution. C.S. states, Thank you, Gwilda, for this stellar interview with Christopher Vassi. I, too, resonate with the Terran theory. I'm so happy to hear Christopher's insight around it. Thanks, C.S. Christopher was a joy to have on the show and brought some very important insights. Curious, dear audience? Visit our archives at missionevolution.org, listen to the episode entitled Restoring Physical Balance as a Key to Evolution, and let us know what you think. With us this hour discussing the hidden powers of sound is John Stuart Reed, his website, cymoscope.com. John, we were getting into a very fascinating concept that um, um, sound, being a mechanical wave, it needs a medium to propagate through, but in the process creates uh, electromagnetic, um, we were saying bubble, if you will, um, that then carries further. Would you continue with that thought and how it relates to the subject at hand, AE, or IE, healing with sound? Absolutely, thank you. We we left on something of a cliffhanger, didn't we? But so we 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 were talking about Julie Andrews. I'm mentioning Julie Andrews singing, you know, to the to the hills and to the sky, uh, and basically that what's happening is that her song is being transformed into light, literally in a form of infrared light, which is radiating away from her as a bubble of infrared light. And because the atmosphere uh, does not unduly absorb uh, infrared light, it can zip through the atmosphere, carrying not the sound of Julie Andrews' voice, but the modulations of her voice in the form of infrared modulations. And these, uh, I mean, it's quite a poetic thought, isn't it? You know, that our song will literally travel to the stars as infrared light, as modulated infrared light. And, you know, that, and, that really relates to, you know, a lot of the indigenous people say your words carry to the next generations. Be careful what you say. <laughs> that, that really sets their line, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, the you know, the Buddhist tradition where they have that giant bell in the temple and they have this belief, uh, they've had this belief for thousands of years, you know, that, that the sound of the bell uh, radiates across the, or resonates across the universe. Well, well, now we know for sure that it does, not again, not as sound, but as modulated infrared light. And this same um, fact in physics is actually being used right now by astroseismologists. So this is a, f a new field of study so it's part of the field of astrophysics. And in this field of science, uh, astro-seismologists can listen in to the sounds of stars. In other words, you know, in the heart of the star, in the furnace of the star, of course, there's a huge amount of sound happening all of the time. And that sound modulates the light of the star in a tiny way, but sufficient to be picked up by a powerful telescope and then demodulated so we can literally hear the sounds inside the star. And this tells the uh, astro-seismologists a lot about the atomic physics going on 
inside stars. But from a, a more earthly uh, perspective, this uh, concept that every sound ever made is making light has very important implications when we talk about uh, sound healing or sound therapy. Well, if you're talking about, again, ultra red, we can't see that, but you're saying we can see sound. So uh, do we see sound by uh, observing the uh, uh, medium that it propagates through? Well, the way that we see sound, the way that sound can be made visible uh, is simply, you know, using this principle that I mentioned earlier on about uh, the cymatic principle that whenever you have sound and you have a membrane present, there has to be a cymatic pattern imprinted on that membrane. These are just the simple laws of physics. And one of the wonderful aspects to this law of physics is that scale is totally irrelevant. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, first of all, on the north pole of the planet Saturn, there is a giant hexagon so large that it could swallow three Earths. So just to give you a, an extreme example of uh, the geometry that's created by sound on you know, a massive scale. At the other end of the scale, every cell in our body, as I mentioned earlier, has a membrane. And so when the sounds of our own body and sounds from the external environment enter into our body, they also imprint a cymatic pattern on the membrane of our cells. So let, let, let me let me clarify something here. Doesn't water also have a membrane? So we're not. So water has a membrane as well. Does that apply here? Well, uh, it does apply, but not quite in the way that that you're perhaps thinking. So, in the instrument that um, that I developed over many years, which is called the cymoscope instrument, it does use water as the primary imprinting medium. So what I mean by that is that the surface of water is exquisitely sensitive to vibration. I think this is generally a commonly known aspect of science. The surface of water is exquisitely sensitive to vibration. So in the development of this uh, cymoscope instrument, having tried many different uh, types of liquid, by the way, including Scotch whiskey, you know, which uh, you can always take a little sip of after you've run the experiment. But I found that, uh, no, alcohol did not actually provide the best result. The very best result um, w was simply pure water. And the purer, the better. You know, the less solutes in the water, the better. So very, very pure, what we call medical-grade water, the type of water that you could inject into your veins very safely, okay? Well, so when you imprint sound onto the surface of water, you have to imagine that all of the trillions of water molecules are all arranged kind of uh, pell-mell, you know, just very randomly, they're, they're not particularly organized in any way. But when sound is present, the sound literally organizes all of those water molecules. And I'm not just talking about on the surface of the water, I'm talking about right into the depths of the water that we have in this, uh, what we call a cuvette, which is a small fused quartz container of water in the cymoscope instrument. So all of the molecules in this, held in this little cuvette are all beautifully organized as soon as the sound is present. So if you think about this from the point of view of your own body, of course, all of the sounds that are entering your body are similarly organizing 
the visceral waters uh, in your body that surround all your organs, and also the, the water that's contained in every cell in your body. Sound has this almost magical property of being able to organize, in other words, to, to create form from formlessness, and it does so very rapidly. So that really brings a, brings a whole new um, focus on the kind of sound that we're exposed to. So we're in the middle of a city and there's a jackhammer going on and traffic and this and that versus standing out with, with uh, out on the mountain with the birds and the trees and the breeze. There's a, a quite a difference there, isn't it? Can you, can you speak to that a little? I can indeed. As a matter of fact, um, Professor Sung Chol Ji, uh, who's from Rutgers University, uh, visited us, actually collaborate on many different aspects of science. One particular visit uh, with Sung Chol Ji concerned an experiment that we conducted with human blood, where we took a, a vial of human blood. This was, um, you know, recently removed from someone, a blood donor. And, um, and warmed it to normal room temperature and then warmed it f further up to 37 degrees C, which is, you know, normal body blood temperature. And then we decanted it into two smaller test tubes. One test tube goes into a very quiet environment and the other test tube goes into a musical environment. In other words, an incubator that contains a small speaker, so we can literally play music uh, to that blood. Now, I'll come back to th that whole experiment uh, a little bit later in more detail, but what I wanted to share at this point, relating to your question, was that when we played, instead of playing music to the blood in the uh, incubator, we played white noise. Now, white noise is a kind of random noise, a bit like the sound of uh, standing by a waterfall, for example, or the ocean waves, although the ocean waves tend to be rhythmic as well. So let's go back to the waterfall model. So the sound of water falling can be very noisy, actually, if you, especially if you get very close to the waterfall and the sound levels can be very high. In this case, with we were creating white noise from a speaker and playing that white noise direct to the blood. Now, um, I don't want to get into too many de technicalities here, but just to say that if you play uh, white noise to blood as we did at 105 decibels, what happens, well, what happened for us was it literally killed all of the red blood cells in that test tube within 20 minutes. And I mean dead, completely dead within 20 minutes. So you're absolutely right. You know, when you, you talk about the sound, the very noisy environment of living in cities, it is actually not a healthy environment for us to be in. Uh, far better to be uh, surrounded by nature, of course. And um, But yes, I can I can elaborate on the... Uh, on that experiment, which was actually a very important experiment, if you if you wish. Well, does this relate? I've I've seen the experiments done with plants, where they have a speaker and they have this plant sitting in front of the speaker, and depending on whether they're playing hard rock or classical music, the plants will either lean away from or towards the sound, and actually, you know, turn brown and wilt if it's too intense. Is that the same thing going on there? Well, it's, you know, this is a very strange thing, Gwilda, but uh, like you, you know, we, we have read about those particular 
experiments, right? And um, my own personal view on it is that they are not quite accurate, um, and I'm going to tell you exactly why I think that. So when we conducted these experiments with music, um, both uh, Professor Sung Chul Ji and myself, we both had this kind of um, this concept that if we play classical music to the blood, that we would see a much better result. What we were testing for, by the way, was the longevity of red blood cells. You know, how long does the red blood cell live under, for example, music versus a very quiet environment? That was the, the basic aspect of this uh, basic premise of this experiment. Uh, so, and we both believed, or we both had this concept in our minds that yes, classical music is bound to have a better result than popular music. But in fact, the, the reverse proved to be true. Um, the classical music, I know it's amazing, but it's, it's the fact, you know, we, when we repeated this experiment many times, so we know it's for sure is the situation that the classical music had much less effect on the vi vitality of the red blood cells than did the popular music. And there's a very good reason for this, you know, that we have eventually uh, figured because it relates to our own bodies and the, the base frequencies that our own heart creates when blood is circulating through our system. You know, obviously the heart has a primary role, which is to circulate the blood. It's a pump and it circulates the blood. But what we've come to, to believe through this research is that it has a secondary role as well. So the heart is not only circulating the blood, it's also providing low frequency, I'm talking about sound here, low frequency sound pulses that literally um, spread throughout our whole circulatory system and they aid the hemoglobin molecules to uptake oxygen uh, from that's dissolved in the blood. Amazing. Well, we'll pick up on this really interesting subject on the other side of yet another commercial pause. Um, John and I will return to our discussion shortly, and we'll get into the heart and its secondary um, impact on sound. You stay right there. This is Mission Evolution coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net, and the Exxon TV channel, www.exxontvchannel.com. is Mission Evolution. Did you know our entire Leading Edge Information Pact past episode collection is available to listen or download with our compliments? Visit our archives at www.missionevolution.org for our ever-growing selection of guests and topics. To find out more about me, Gwilda Wiecka, and the other things I offer, visit findyourpathhome.com. Our special guest this hour is John Stuart Reed. We're speaking about Sound Made Visible. His website, cymoscope.com. John, we were getting into some, we entered into the zone of the heart and how popular music um, 
is is less um, damaging or less uh, likely to make red blood cells die out early than classical. And then you got into the heart, which triggered me into thinking, okay, now we have indigenous music, we have rhythm, we have the heartbeat rhythm. Does all this relate? It does indeed. You know, so you, you're talking there about, for example, uh, indigenous drumming. You know, and and that's you know that's been an aspect of of human culture for thousands of years. Um, it's one of the earliest known musical instruments, of course, was the drum. So coming back to this principle, this uh, and by the way, I must say that you know this is hypothetical right now because we have not yet published papers on this. However. So it's it's cutting edge information, but but certainly from all of the experiments that we've conducted so far, uh, a general view is that the low frequency sound created by the heartbeat um, causes the hemoglobin molecules that are obviously in every red blood cell to absorb the oxygen readily that's already there dissolved in the blood. And of course, I think it's generally known that oxygen drives the healing processes, almost all of the healing processes in the human body. Um, so, uh, but this idea, you know, that classical music, um, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? That classical music is not as, uh, let's say, healing as popular music. I, I think that most people would would agree with that. And um, so when it comes, you know, to that experiment that you mentioned about plants and playing rock music to plants, uh, you know, that they tend to move away from the rock music and they bend towards the classical music. Well, I have not conducted that experiment myself, but I'm a little bit suspicious now because you know, what is certainly not backing up our own experiment in terms of, you know, the results that we saw. And I, what I'm thinking is, you know, if you play uh, rock music, any kind of rock music to plants at a reasonable level, and I'm talking about, you know, in terms of sort of 60 to maybe 80 decibels, that's a reasonable level. It's, and I don't think it's going to harm it doesn't matter, you know, what the type of music is to some extent. What matters mostly are the frequencies that are in that music. Um, and so I don't think the plants, the cells in the plants, or the cells in our bodies uh, specifically can distinguish music as such. But what they can distinguish are the frequencies within, within that music. And what we are saying, what Professor G and I are saying, is that the low frequencies in uh, popular music have this uh, effect, this means of making more oxygen available to the cells of our bodies. Uh, and the same thing almost certainly is true of plants, although, you know, we have not, as I said, we have not conducted that experiment. In other words, what I'm saying is about the plants, that perhaps the researchers play the rock music at levels which would actually disturb us never mind the plants you know so keep the levels uh, reasonable um, you know sort of 60 to 80 decibels and I'm pretty sure that the plants would actually love the rock music just as they would love almost any form of music um, so anyway the result is is very important uh, our research is important from the point of view of one of the many mechanisms by which music is actually healing to the human body and um, it will be come even more important in future years.
If you study, again, the indigenous uh, healing techniques, so many of them involve singing and drumming uh, to the patient or in, in the presence of the patient. It's starting to make sense with what you're saying. Absolutely. And also, don't, don't, let's not forget the uh, didgeridoo, you know, the, it's uh, uh, called the Yudaki in, uh, in the, by the Aboriginals in Australia. That's another wonderful instrument that creates uh, a wonderful range of low frequency sound that, again, has the same impact that we're talking about to release oxygen in the bloodstream. And um, so, yeah, you, you know what happens if we if we lose uh, if our heart stops, we lose consciousness literally within seconds, and and that's simply because our brains, of course, are um, they need a lot of oxygen. So that heartbeat, as soon as the heartbeat stops, the brain will black out basically because it needs all of that oxygen. Well, now let's think about. Uh, a way we could possibly uh, reactivate that that oxygen in the bloodstream by external means. And I'm talking now about low frequency sound. You know, so this is a possible modality of the future where low frequency sound could be applied to someone whose heart has stopped and actually perhaps um, keep them viable until the heart can be restarted. Do you understand what I'm, where I'm coming with this? I, I do. So in other words, you're saying introduce the low frequency sound to someone whose heart stopped. It keeps the oxygenation going until you can get the heart going again. Exactly. It's exactly right. And uh, so, you know, these are exciting aspects of, uh, of medical science that, that we're going to be exploring. Absolutely. Um, changing gears a little bit, let's go to Egypt. Mm. Yeah, well, of course, it was Egypt where this all began for me. As I mentioned earlier in, in the program, um, I had been an acoustics engineer for almost 30 years at the point when my, my daddy and I had been traveling in Egypt. And we were very fortunate to find ourselves in the Great Pyramid alone. You know, it's a, it is a sacred place. Uh, it's a bit like walking into a cathedral. So your any of your listeners that have been there will know exactly what I'm what I'm meaning here, because when you're there by yourself or in a very quiet way, like as I was with my dad, um, it, it has a very strong spiritual sense to it, this uh, pyramid and all of the chambers within it. And in this particular instance, as an acoustics engineer, of course, I was very interested in the beautiful resonance of the main chamber, the king's chamber, as they call it, and also the sarcophagus, which is a block of granite. It's rose granite, so it has a, a nice pinky kind of look to it. And this is granite that has a high quartz content, about 20% quartz, and, it, and the granite was originally uh, quarried several hundred miles to the south in Aswan, brought up the Nile, and then eventually, you know, fashioned into a sarcophagus uh, and placed in the chamber. So it's like a coffin, basically, made of granite, solid granite. Well, I, you know, had always wanted to lie in this sarcophagus and um, and make a, a vocal glissando, kind of an unstepped enunciation of a single tone. Why? Well, just to establish what the prime 
resonant frequency of that sarcophagus was because it is so exquisitely resonant you know if you if you tap the side of it with your fist for example it rings like a low pitched bell so you can imagine you know from an acoustics engineering viewpoint i was fascinated by this so i did lie in it it's a bit naughty but you know i i, I didn't cause any harm and um, and at one particular frequency, something astonishing happened. Every cell, it felt like every cell in my body was tingling, and goosebumps broke out all over my flesh. And it it was just such an amazing moment in my life. It really changed my life, actually, forever. Because uh, that was the the experience that led me then to decide to go back to Egypt, but armed this time with acoustics instrumentation um, to actually discover, you know, what was that effect? How how did I, have, how did it feel? How, how was it possible that all the cells in my body would feel like they were tingling and, and how was the, these goosebumps created and so on? How, how much later was it from the first experience until you went back with instrumentation? It was the same year, you know, so okay. my daddy and I had been there early in uh, 96, early in February 96, and later that same year, in the autumn of that year, or the fall as you call it, um, I, I returned with all of this acoustics instrumentation, having gained permission, you know, to carry out these experiments. But it wasn't actually the 96 experiments that really changed my life, it was the 97 experiments, because they you know, I went back again in 1997, and that's when I conducted a cymatics experiment with the uh, sarcophagus, and that was. So, in other words, um, you you were working with the sarcophagus and yes. making sound visible, so you could observe what was going on. Absolutely. In, in the 96 experiments, they were very standard kind of acoustics experiments that any acoustics engineer would be familiar with. But the 97 experiments were all focused on making sound visible uh, with the sarcophagus. And the purpose of that, of course, Gwilda, was, was to, uh, to be able to see the resonances in that sarcophagus. Because, and this is one of the whole points of cymatics, is that when you can see something, you can understand it at a far deeper level than you can perhaps with your other senses. So making sound visible is a very important aspect of this new science. And um, in the case of the sarcophagus, what I saw were a whole series of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs that were emerging on the membrane. I mean, it was a really astonishing moment in my life, which of course I will never ever forget. But the important aspect to this work relating to sound healing is that three weeks before going out to carry out these cymatics experiments in 97, I quite badly injured my lower back and I was in a lot of pain. And so when I entered the pyramid in 97, I was in still in extreme pain. I mean, at one point I thought I might have to cancel the whole mission, but I had paid quite a lot of money to the antiquities department. So I just basically, I took more analgesics than perhaps I should have done. I gritted my teeth and somehow, you know, I managed to get into the pyramid. But having set up the experiment and then seeing these ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs emerge on sand, this was not water, by the way, we were sprinkling sand on the membrane stretched across the top of the sarcophagus. Seeing these ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs emerged, obviously I was excited, you know, I was, I mean, it was an amazing moment in my life. 
Uh, and I actually, in that moment, I suddenly realized that there was no pain in my lower back. All the pain had completely left me. And um, I thought, ah, this is probably endorphins. You know, I'm very excited. I'm happy seeing this amazing result. Um, and I thought, you know, when I get back outside the pyramid and I get back to the hotel and so on, the pain will come back. But actually, the pain never did come back. And so I real reasoned that something very important had happened. Within 20 minutes of making sound in the king's chamber, all that pain left me when three weeks of, you know, analgesics and also physiotherapy, by the way, I'd gone to a physiotherapist. Uh, no one was able to help me with this pain, really. And, and only 20 minutes of sound caused the pain <laughs> to vanish. So well, that 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 back, balances back out with what you were saying about oxygenation, because oftentimes a lower back injury has to do with musculature. It, it goes does. into spasm and becomes hypoxic, so it doesn't have enough oxygen, and that causes more pain. It's a splinting cycle, they call it, which causes fear, which causes more tightening, which causes less oxygen. So from what you're saying, it could have impacted by oxygenating the muscles in your back. Absolutely. You know, that is definitely one of the primary mechanisms that I, I'm now writing actually on this very subject of, for a new medical textbook on sound therapy. And so well, we're going to have to pick up on the oxygenation and sound therapy in texts on the other side of yet another commercial break. John and I will be back shortly to continue this very interesting discussion. So don't you go away. This is Mission Evolution coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net, and the Exxon TV channel, www.exxontvchannel.com. This is Mission Evolution, bringing together gifted people of service to the world. I love to hear from our audience. Your thoughts are very important to me. To suggest a topic or guest that you would think would be of interest, email info at missionevolution.org. I'm sure we'll all enjoy them. To find out more about me, Gwilda Wiecka, my school, and the evolutionary tools we offer, visit www.findyourpathhome.com. This hour, we're sharing thoughts with our special guest, John Stuart Reed. His website, simoscope.com. John, we, we were, we were, I could go down all sorts of rabbit holes from where we, we were when we ended the last segment. But the um, symbols that were showing in the sand, and the sand, I take it, was the, the, the propagating agent, the way you were setting up the sound test. Or were they repeatable? In other words, if you repeated that exact same tone or sound, did those same symbols show back up again, like in the Chaladni symbols? Well, um, it's a good question, but of course I haven't actually been back to conduct further experiments um, to, to be able to prove that very point. But I would uh, imagine that the answer would be yes. And the reason for this is because if you, with, with cymatics, providing you have good controls, uh, 
correct, then you can achieve replicable results. So in this case, um, what we're talking about here in terms of where did these ancient symbols come from? How did they suddenly pop up you know, out of an ancient Egyptian sarcophagus? And the answer, or at least the hypothetical answer, relates to a place in Egypt called Neken, ancient Neken, uh, also known to the Greeks as Hierakonpolis. And this is a town just south of modern-day Luxor in Egypt. And in that town is where the very first uh, development of hieroglyphic language occurred. It's also the, uh, coincidentally, and I don't think it actually is a coincidence, but it's also coincidentally where the first working of granite in Egypt was conducted. So um, linking these two ideas together, hieroglyphs with granite, brings us to this hypothesis that in, it was in this town of Neken where they were literally shaping, you know, crafting the, the sarcophagus for the uh, king's chamber of the Khufu pyramid. Uh, we're talking now about 5,000 years ago in this town, they would be working there, right? Now, when, they, when you work granite with tools, as they would have had to use, of course, it rings. Granite has this beautiful ringing sound because of the high quartz content. And now we're going to talk very briefly about something called synesthesia, where, you know, um, some people have this kind of cross-wiring of the senses where they can literally see sound and uh, or taste oh, color. Know that. Yeah, you tell didn't me, know tell me yeah, a little more about it. it. No, I didn't. It's a kind of cross-wiring. It's, it's one of the, um, you know, some aspects of physiology that are not commonly known. But certainly, you know, I've met a woman, for example, who could see sounds around her all of the time. And the, the reason for this, the way that it works, is as I mentioned much earlier, Whenever you have sound and you have a membrane, you have to have a pattern, a cymatic pattern, right? So what happens is in the cochlea, in your ears, you have membranes, of course. Now, the patterns that are forming on the membranes from the sounds that you're hearing around you, those patterns are suppressed by your brain. If you could see them, it would probably drive you nuts, right? So they're suppressed in, uh, in favor of simply distinguishing the frequencies in the sound and you know ultimately are interpreted by our brain as being the sounds that we can hear but and this is this comes back to me personally actually as well if i'm on the verge of sleep Gwilda, and i'm just starting to go to sleep then and let's say there's a loud sound suddenly in the room maybe something drops off a shelf or whatever right i can see a beautiful pattern in my mind's eye. I get a shock, of course, because I'm suddenly alert and awake. But in that fraction of a second when the sound happens, I can see this beautiful geometric pattern in my mind's eye. And the reason for that this happens is because of this synesthesia effect that I'm talking about, um, where for normal people, let's say, that are not synesthetic normally, and I'm not, uh, certainly not normally, but in that moment when my brain is turning my hearing off, right, then, and only then, I see these sound patterns. Well, let's say, and I go back to ancient Egypt, and we're in this town of Neken, and, and here there are guys working to create this sarcophagus, right? And it's creating these beautiful ringing sounds, as I mentioned. And standing nearby, 
is a is a, a vizier. This is a guy whose job it is to measure, like a kind of modern day or an old fashioned rather um, quantum. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> forgetting the word now. What is it in architecture? Um, where they measure the the work that's being conducted, you know, on a building or whatever. In this case, the vizier is actually measuring how much work these guys are doing on the sarcophagus, right? And in the process, he is seeing in his mind's eye, let's say that this guy is synesthetic, and he is seeing in his mind's eye these beautiful patterns um, that created by the granite, and so he writes them down, he makes a note on his pad, right? And he says, oh, these are very interesting patterns. I'll, I will use these in the development of the hieroglyphic language, right? And then thousands of years later, I go into the pyramid, stretch a membrane across the sarcophagus and see these very same um, patterns that have been you know, embedded in the hieroglyphic language. So that's a kind of very quick uh, overview of how it was that I was able to see these hieroglyphic like symbols appearing in the sand sprinkled on the on the membrane um, yeah it opens up all sorts of thoughts about where does language come from where does the written word come from where does symbology come from and I'm afraid that's a rabbit hole we won't have time to go down um, maybe another time but I would I would love to have you take it to the street now uh, we've really gone into some very eye-opening um, concepts about sound how does it relate to our ability to heal how does it relate to our ability to evolve as individuals and as a culture Absolutely. Um, it's a, a very big question, of course, and I know we don't have a lot of time, but, you know, going back to those experiments in the Great Pyramid in 97, where my back was healed and where we saw these amazing hieroglyphs, right? That sent, that set me on this journey that I'm still on today in two ways. One was to develop an instrument. It seemed to me that, you know, seeing these hieroglyphs emerge on this membrane um, could become a, a, an important new tool for science. So that set me on the road to developing the cymoscope instrument. And then the other important aspect, of course, was this this healing, this almost you know instantaneous healing, 20 minutes and all the pain gone. You know um, that was an astonishing aspect of the, of these experiments. And so all of these years later, you know, more than two decades later. I'm still researching why sound heals. And now, as I mentioned, you know, I'm actually writing a chapter for a new medical textbook. So one of the mechanisms that we've already talked about is this oxygenation mechanism. But another concerns um, what the science calls sonocytology. Now, sonocytology is literally the sounds made by ourselves, generated by ourselves, emitted by ourselves. So all of the cells in your body actually create sound. And this was a discovery made by uh, Professor James Jimzeski of UCLA, and I think it was about 2001. And he, did, he made, this, made this discovery, and it has very important implications for medical science. And this is, you know, part of what I'm going to relate now in relation to illness. So there are many forms of illness, of course, but, but one important aspect of illness is that 
cells in your body can go to sleep. They can literally go into a sleep state. And this sleep state is called the G0 phase in medical uh, terminology. And in this phase, the phase of the cell cycle, the cells are not replicating. They're not doing what they're meant to be doing. So you can have, for example, an illness where a whole system of cells in your body is literally asleep. So the body, therefore, is naturally out of balance. It's not, you know, I mean, normally health, when a healthy person, all the systems of the body are working, they're all in a, a beautiful, harmonious balance. But in this case, of course, we have a system of the body that's been challenged in some way. Let's say an invasion of a pathogen or some form of toxicity has entered into our system or perhaps just a physical trauma. But whatever it is, it means that this system of your body is asleep. And, um, and, and also, while, while it's asleep, it's not making any sound, by the way. It's silent, okay? It's not generating its normal song, let's say. Uh, well, sound can provide this means of stimulus, which actually reawakens the cells and brings them back to into the what's actually called the G1 phase of the cell cycle, which is leading to replication, you know, and division and so on. So it also uh, sounds like this can be used as a diagnostic tool by listening to the sound of cells. It absolutely can. And Professor G and I have written a paper, which, as you mentioned at the very beginning was published in the Water Journal, differentiating between the sounds of cancer cells and healthy cells. So a cancer cell, when you listen to it, you can distinguish uh, particular um, dissonant notes, which when made visible with the cymoscope instrument, become obviously kind of skewed and ugly, what we would subjectively think of as ugly patterns, right? But if you make the sound of a healthy cell visible, it creates beautiful harmony, beautiful geometries. And so this uh, very um, aspect of, of cymatic science can help, for example, a surgeon to determine exactly where the margins of a tumor lie. You know, when, when a, a surgeon is tasked with removing a tumor, he or she has to know exactly where the margins lie so that they can only remove the tumor and not any healthy tissue. And of course, apparently, I'm not a surgeon, but apparently it's not that easy to distinguish. So a tool based on cymatic science would allow the surgeon to be able to know exactly how this would work is that you would uh, use a thing called a Raman spectroscope, which is actually a laser probe, a laser light. And when this laser light is scanned across the tissues, going from the healthy, say, into the tumor area, then the light is modulated by the sounds of the cells and then demodulated so that the surgeon can actually distinguish exactly where these uh, where this margin lies you know so that they can cut out only the tumor and and also there's a promise here of a future science in which because cells make sound and each type of cell has its own unique song it may be possible in the future by simple laws of resonance to be able to eradicate cancer cells purely through sound in other words you listen Fantastic. into the sound listen into the sound of the cells, greatly amplified, send that sound back in greatly amplified, therefore destroying 
the cancer cells. Now, what a wonderful future that would be. What a wonderful future. And we are out of time uh, for our, our time together, which is scary. It went so fast. And I can't thank you enough for bringing this leading-edge information to our people. It was a great pleasure to be with you, Gwilda. Thank you so much for inviting me. You bet. Our guest this hour has been acoustics pioneer and author of Egyptian Sonics, John Stuart Reed. His website, simoscope.com. Remember, our entire information-packed past episode collection is available for listen or download free of charge. Visit our archives at missionevolution.org for our ever-growing selection of guests and topics. This has been Mission Evolution with Gwilda Wiecka, coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network www.xzbn.net and the Exxon TV channel www.exxontvchannel.com Please be sure to join us next time as the mission continues bringing information, resources, and support to an evolving world. <laughs>